little bit about myself. I shared a little bit a couple weeks ago when I was up here teaching, and a few of you know this, but a few of you don't. Uh, I'm originally from Southern California, which is great. I grew up in a suburb of L.A., which is called Torrance, two miles from the beach. And you ever grown, like, so familiar or so used to something that you kind of get apathetic towards it? I, uh, in L.A., there's 292 days of sunshine a year. Exactly. It's pretty awesome. And there's only 15 inches of rain a year, which is pretty cool, too. When I came up to go to school, I went to school at Lewis and Clark College. Um, the football coaches had told me it doesn't rain that much, which was kind of a blatant lie. But, hey, they got me here. And then... Uh, the first time it rained, I actually went outside in flip-flops because growing up in South California, it doesn't rain or it doesn't snow ever. So I don't know how to go in the snow without my, getting my shoes wet. So I just won't wear shoes. I'll wear flip-flops. And then uh, I didn't actually own a rain jacket until my senior year of college. I had grown so used to sunshine. I was just kind of like, well, that's the way every, everywhere must be. But then I came to Oregon. It was totally different. And then I was really confused for the longest time. When it was sunny outside, all the Oregonians wanted to sit outside. It's like, it's hot. I don't want to be outside. I want to be in the air conditioning. But now I realize, okay, everyone's trying to soak up the vitamin D while they can. But kind of in through all this, I realized I just had grown so used to the weather that I just took it for granted. Now, when we approach uh, Mark 15 tonight, we got to ask ourselves the question if we've done the same thing. If we've grown so familiar with the story that we've grown apathetic to it. We've heard it so many times, it's so familiar that it's just kind of, eh, old news to us. Uh, as of Friday, I had a totally different teaching prepped. And I was talking to Jenna, my wife, and she, I was kind of depressed. She's like, what's, what's wrong? What are, you, like, what are you actually trying to communicate on Sunday? And what, what I shared with her was that kind of just hit me. I, I've grown apathetic to the story. I've heard it so many times, just kind of like, yeah, of course she just died, and it was good for us. But when we approach Mark 15, the story of Jesus dying on the cross, we should, we should be able to approach it in a way that it actually impacts us, that it actually hits us. So if, you, if you've not been here before, you weren't here last week, just to give you background on where we're at in the story— Mark 14, Jesus is uh, put on trial, he's condemned to death, and then he gets uh, beaten, beaten beyond recognition, and then nailed to a cross to die. And then here we pick up in Mark 15, and we're going to go to verse 33. So at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Now we're just going to pause there for tonight. 
If we pick, if we look at verse 33, I think maybe I've just read the story so many times that I kind of just show, oh, okay, it's dark in the middle of the day. That's weird. Eh, whatever. And just kind of move on. But the darkness is important. Mark is, Mark is trying to communicate something. And if we look at darkness throughout uh, the, the Hebrew scriptures, throughout all of the Bible, we see that darkness precedes or it comes before judgment. So if you think of the story of the Exodus in the Passover, Egypt gets dark for three days before God executes his final judgment on Egypt and its gods. So dark for three days and then judgment comes. If we read Amos, famous prophet, not to be confused with the famous guy who makes his cookies. Ah, think it's all I got. Come on. Amos 8, I'm just going to put it on the screen. Amos 8, Amos writes, In that day, he's actually recording the words of God, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. So these are just two examples, but there's, a pl- there's plenty of examples throughout Scripture. What Mark is doing here is he's saying it's dark in the middle of the day. What he's telling us is that whatever's going on here, it's that God's judgment is happening. But who is the judgment happening to? So it would make sense if the judgment were happening to the Roman centurions. They had just beaten Jesus. They were nailing him to the cross. They were mocking him. Or it would make sense if it was the Jewish religious leaders who were going to be judged here because they've wrongfully accused Jesus. They kidnapped him in the middle of the night, put him on trial. They sentenced him to death. Or it really would make sense if all of humanity was going to be judged at this time. Because every single one of us stand as guilty before God. Not one of us has, has perfectly loved our neighbor. Not one of us has perfectly lived out the calls to live and, and do justice and righteousness. So we all stand guilty. And it could be that all of humanity is being judged here. But when the way Mark tells the story is that God's judgment is actually only connected to the death of one man. God's judgment here is linked to the death of Jesus. And, okay, so we're going to table the judgment thing. I want to come back to that later. If we look down, down at the text again in verse 34, we see that Jesus cries out in a loud voice, uh, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, it's important to note that uh, Jesus here isn't just using random words. He's not just making up some thing. He's actually quoting a psalm. So if your Bible might have the note, it says he's quoting Psalm 22. These words are not just random, they're meaningful. Now, my temptation in having heard this story so many times, and being so familiar with it, is to kind of just skip over the agony and pain that Jesus is going through. And Jose talked a lot about this last week, um, but there's, there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of suffering, and this is a brutal beating that Jesus is going through. Now, I've had the benefit of only ever having seen one person die from a violent thing. It's a car hitting a biker. But there's, there's a really, this, it's a traumatic event to see something or someone go from alive to dead. When we read the story of Jesus dying on the cross, it's okay and probably even good if it conjures up emotions it should elicit strong emotions out of us. 
This man, Jesus, who's been wrongly accused, is now dying on a cross. I think sometimes we assume that Jesus kind of pulled out his Superman God card and just kind of like disembodied, didn't have to actually feel it. But he absolutely feels it. He cries out, why have you forsaken me? It's this brutal, painful thing going on. He's being mocked. All of his male friends have left him. They've abandoned him. So Jesus is going through a lot of pain here. Now, since Jesus quotes Hebrew scripture, he's quoting the, the first verse in Psalm 22, it, it would be beneficial for us to read Psalm 22. Why does Jesus pick this psalm of anything he could possibly say? Why does he quote it here? Well, I think there's a whole lot of meaning if we read Psalm 22. The, the first, it just starts out what Jesus quotes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. So the situation described in Psalm 22, what Jesus is doing is saying this situation in Psalm 22, it actually applies perfectly to what's going on here. So in Psalm 22, this guy's beaten, he's mocked. It feels like God has left him. God's not responding. But if we keep reading in Psalm 22, we see that the speaker has this confidence in the faithfulness of God. He says, God, you are the king. I know you're the holy one. I know you're the one who has been faithful to our ancestors. Are you going to be faithful now? I'm experiencing pain and agony. I'm being attacked. And I know your character, so what's going to happen? But if we skip down to verse 24 in Psalm 22, we see that for he, which I inserted the word God there, uh, has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. We skip down to verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring it to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Okay, so I know that's a lot. It's a really long thing, just kind of doesn't seem to mesh super well together. But what Jesus has done, he said that situation described in Psalm 22 fits what's going on here. So if we read through, just like we did in Psalm 22, what's going on is there's an afflicted person, but there's something key that happens in the end of it all. Though the person is afflicted, something is accomplished in the end. There's the affirmation, the celebration that God is going to do something. He's going to restore all of humanity. It's going to be told to future generations. There's this message that's going to be passed along to future generations that he's done something, he's accomplished something. Which I think makes the crucifixion of Jesus make a little bit more sense. There's actually something being accomplished at the cross. Now, if we flip back to Mark 15 and look back down in verse 34, Jesus' cry is, interestingly, it's a loud cry. So he's not whimpering, He's not breathless. He's not weak, which would be understandable, right? Because he got arrested in the middle of the night. 
put on trial. He's been beaten. He's been forced to carry the cross up a hill. It's the Middle East, and there's, it's really hot. I mean, we think it's hot outside. It's probably another 15 to 20 degrees hotter. It would make sense if Jesus were super weak in this moment, but Jesus is, Mark tells us it's a loud cry. It's specifically a loud thing that Jesus is displaying his power even in this moment. Now, the next verse down in verse 35, we see that there's a crowd observing Jesus' crucifixion. So it's not just that Jesus is on a cross on this hill by himself. There's a Jewish crowd and there's a Roman crowd, Roman centurions who've actually put Jesus to death, and then there's Jewish people there as well. In verse 35, we see that when some of those who were standing near had heard Jesus' cry, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. So what's the deal here? Well, the belief at the time was that if a really holy person was in times of trouble, God would send Elijah to help him. Elijah, it's okay if you don't know him, he's a prophet. For, you can read about him in First and Second Kings, but he's a prophet, does really great stuff for Israel. And so the belief in the time was that if there's a really holy person in times of trouble, God would send Elijah to help him because it's a time of trouble. And so what the bystanders do is they see him, they go, okay, well, this maybe, maybe God's going to help this guy. And one of them goes to grab wine vinegar, which seems really weird to us, but wine vinegar is like the Gatorade of its day. So the, the wine vinegar would have been there for the Roman soldiers to, to quench your thirst on a hot day. I don't even want to try that, try and like, you know, drink wine vinegar as vinegar doesn't sound good when it's 97 degrees outside, but that's what they were doing. So they take the wine vinegar and they offer it to Jesus as a way to kind of keep him alive, give him strength to maybe keep him alive long enough for Elijah to come and save him. And that's, that's kind of the hope. And what we got to see in all this, why does Mark tell us this? Remember that Mark, throughout his entire story, throughout the entire gospel of Mark, he's been tracing this idea, this concept, who is Jesus? This identity of Jesus, who is he, who... Some people say this, some people say this, some people want to follow him, some people want to kill him. Who is he? And, and Mark is building this situation, like he so often does, he builds two uh, opposing ideas. He, he paints one person, and then he paints another person, and shows us contrast, and we're going to get there. In verse 37, we see that Jesus, he, Mark writes, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So again, Jesus cries out with something loud, but he breathes his last breath and he dies. All of this buildup, all these people following, who is this guy? What's going to happen? Is Elijah going to come save him? Is God going to come save him? He dies. Which, which we have the benefit of knowing what happens next, but imagine if you're in that situation. This guy you've put all your hopes and dreams in, he's, he's dead on a cross. But Mark shows us that Jesus' death has a sequel. It's not anywhere near the end of the story. The directly connected next event is the tearing of the temple curtain. So what's the temple curtain? All my history geeks out here, we're going to do some history geeky stuff. So 
we have a cool diagram of the temple complex. Really cool, right? Um, I didn't make it, but I think it's a visual is helpful. So the temple curtain being torn, what's it all about? This, if you can see this box, which maybe you can, maybe you can't, is the size of an American football field. So the actual whole Herod's temple fits about mm, two, two and a half football fields. It's a big thing. And the way that the temple worked, whereas there's the outside, this is as far as Gentiles could come, non-Jews. Then you have the women's court where uh, Jewish women could come. They could get this close. Then you have the court of Jewish men. They could come this close. And then this building right here is called the holy place. Inside the holy place is the most holy place. The holy of holies. Yeah, it's not a super creative name, but that's what it's called. So this building right here is really big. When, when Mark talks about the temple curtain, what he's talking about is a curtain that would have been right around here, right behind this door. It's a big thing. Don't think like an Ikea curtain. It's, it's thick. It's soundproof. Just to give you like a visual reference, this, so this is the inner one, but this kind of space on the stage is about 25 feet high. Jenna helped me look up the average size of it. So this is 25 feet. The outer curtain, there's two curtains in the temple. The outer curtain was 82 feet high. So I think three times this big. It's a big curtain. Okay, so if it's the outer curtain, which we know at the time was decorated with the image of the, the sky, the, the water, and the land, which is symbolic of the whole universe. So what Mark is saying is that at Jesus' death, things are torn in two. The dividing line that kept people out, that's torn down. The division between heaven and earth has been ripped in two. There's something really powerful and really key going on. And if, this is a picture of what the inner, inner veil would have looked like, the two curtains. If it's the inner veil, inner curtain that Mark has in view, the symbolism is just built on. Because the belief was that in the Holy of Holies, in this room that would have been behind here, that was where the very presence of God resided. So if the veil that kept God in there and people out here, which was the, you could only go in that room once a year, one guy could go in there once a year, and that veil, that curtain is torn in two. The symbolism is that God's presence is no longer relegated to one place, one geographical, you know, building, but it's unleashed. And we know from later in Scripture that this kind of makes sense now. God's Spirit is available to anyone and everyone, but it's directly linked to the death of Jesus. So Mark is telling the story in such a way that shows us that the cross is this momentous, like, turning point of all history. Darkness comes on the earth for, for three hours. The temple veil was torn in two. Everything at the cross is changed. It's this turning point. Now, if we read in verse 39, we see in kind of another flip. Mark has painted this contrast. Who is Jesus? He's, he's traced this. Some people want to kill him. Some people want to follow him. Some people think he's a good teacher, but nothing more. Some people think he's crazy. And here we get to verse 39. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. 
the Roman centurion is the least likely candidate to be the one who sees and understands what's going on. So there's these Jewish bystanders, and they just totally don't understand it. Maybe he's calling Elijah. Let's get some Gatorade. Good-hearted people, they're trying to save him, but they don't understand. They don't see what's going on. But the Roman centurion does. The guy who's part of the, the group that is killing Jesus, he sees how Jesus dies, and he says, surely this man is the Son of God. Which means, if the Roman centurion can get it, anyone can. You don't need a religious pedigree. You don't need this special ethnic bloodline. Jesus is, is not only for a select group of people. And there's nothing that you've done that has placed yourself too far away from Jesus. Even if you're the very person nailing him to the cross. As Mark traces this whole, is Jesus the Son of God? You know, it's the, be the beginning. If you go back and read Mark 1, it's the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Son of God. Then the Sanhedrin says, are you the Son of God? Then Pilate says, are you the king? Are you the king of the Jews? There's this question, who is Jesus? And just like everyone who meets Jesus in the story, we're presented with the same question. You know, we get to hear the story and we get to see Jesus on the cross and we get posed the same question. What do we say about Jesus? What are we going to respond? How are we going to declare? What is Jesus' identity? What do we say about him? Like I was kind of talking about before, this, the cross is this crucial turning point for all of history. The Roman centurion gets it and the Jewish bystanders don't. What the jealous leaders intended for evil actually gets turned out to be used for good. Jesus' power is displayed in his death. Jesus is bound. We are set free. Jesus is killed. We are made alive. The cross, which is this symbol of Roman oppression, is actually the method by which God blesses all of humanity. The brutal death that was meant to silence the movement is the very one that gets celebrated for the last 2,000 years. Everything is getting flipped on its head here at the cross. I mean, like I was saying before, but our celebration is based on the fact that we know how the, the story continues. And, and we'll get there eventually. We're going to get there in, in the next couple weeks. But imagine you're one of the, the followers who, who are around during this. Jesus said, hey, come follow me. You see him do miracles. You see him cast out demons. You see him just kind of show up all the religious leaders. They ask him a question, and they walk away ashamed. Jesus has done all this great stuff, and the followers get criticized. They've left all their livelihoods. They've left their families. Here they are in Jerusalem. Jesus gets arrested. He gets beaten. And then he dies. It's a bit of a letdown. This God that you've put all of your faith in, he, is he the Messiah, is he the Savior of Israel, he's the Savior of the world? How did we get that wrong? But again, we have the benefit of knowing what happens next. But just as a trying to, you know, feel what the people, what the followers, the original disciples would have felt at the moment. 
think it's important for us to kind of, you know, see ourselves in the story. All of this means, though, all of the cross is really beneficial for us. It, it actually gets turned out to be used for our good. So the darkness, the whole theme of darkness preceding judgment happens here at the cross. Except it's not all of humanity that gets judged. Jesus is the one who dies. We are the ones who stand condemned, but Jesus is the one who gets condemned on our behalf. Which means that because of Jesus' death on the cross, you and I actually have the opportunity to stand before God, which is an amazing gift. You know, when I was a sophomore in college, um, I would check every box Christian. I would have even said Jesus died for my sins. I went to a church on Christmas and Easter. But the reality and the meaning and the implication of what the cross is, it never really hit me. It, it never really began to, to make sense to me until it was my sophomore year. And like I was saying before, I, I did play college football. I know I don't look like it. But there's guys on the football team who took the time to try and explain what the cross actually meant for me. And it was a slow, painful process for them. They had a lot of patience with me. And then I got invited to, to actually go to Solid Rock in 2009, and, and things started to stir up in me. And I, and I think I started to realize, if Jesus really died for me, it means I can't really just keep doing my own thing. I mean, I was using Jesus as kind of like, well, Jesus died for my sins, so I can do whatever I want. But I really didn't grasp the meanings and the implications of the cross. If Jesus died for me, that means I can't just mistreat people, I can't just keep cussing, I can't just keep getting drunk on the weekend, I can't just be promiscuous. There's actually a meaning and implication for Jesus dying for me. And like I said, it wasn't an overnight change. This, this began and this started to change, and I started to realize, okay, if Jesus died for me, that means I owed him my life. If Jesus died on my behalf, I owed him my life. If Jesus died for me, he actually had every right to tell me how to live, and I had the responsibility to live that way. If Jesus was willing to die for me, he actually could tell me how to live, and, and I actually should believe him. I should actually follow him. If Jesus died for me, he must really care about me. I mean, if he's willing to die in my place, that means he must really love me. And if Jesus died for me, that means my life must actually have value. My life must actually have meaning and purpose and direction if Jesus would die for me. And I think most importantly, the realization that came that if Jesus died for me, he's the only one worth living for. If Jesus died for me, he's the only one worth living for. And like I said, it wasn't an overnight change. A, imagine that, like, didn't just, you know, go from one day being the way I was. I'm just not going to describe it, but the way I was, it didn't just change overnight. This was a process that began. And what it was, was that spirit, God's spirit, which had been unleashed from the temple, now wanted to come live inside of me. I now wanted to empower me to live out the life that he wanted me to live. 
It was, it was, he wanted to change me from the inside out, and he began to. It was no longer that Jesus was just my fire insurance. Hey, change of address. I don't have to go to hell anymore. It became way more than that. And like we've been reading in Mark 15, when we see Jesus, and especially see Jesus on the cross, every person who sees that and encounters that is presented with the option of of how are you going to respond to Jesus. You can't just ignore him. The cross answered for me and continues to answer for me the question of, God, don't you care? God, don't you see all this evil and suffering in the world? Don't you care? Aren't you watching? Aren't you paying attention? Aren't you going to do anything about it? The cross actually answers that simply. Absolutely God cares. He cares so much he's willing to come die for it. He knows evil and suffering better than any of us do because he experienced it. He went through it. But if you're anything like me, I hear that, and I probably know that in the back of my mind, but I grow numb to that truth, and I need to be reminded of it. The whole attitude, God, don't you care? Prove yourself to me. Just kind of this whisper comes up, I have proven myself, and I do love you, and I do know it. I've I've shown that on the cross. And ultimately, we know that, that there will be a day that we long wait for where there'll be no more death, no more sin, no more suffering, no more pain, no more sickness. And we know God is faithful to bring that promise and and make it happen. We know he's faithful because he's already proved himself on the cross. So as we end tonight's text, I kind of want to leave us off with with two prayers that I'm going to invite you to pray with me or pray with me this week. And then an invitation. First, my prayer for each and every one of us, and I hope your prayer is too, that Jesus make the reality of the cross new to us. Like I was saying, we grow numb to these truths. At least I do. Jesus, make the reality of the cross new to us. And I'm going to read the prayer because I wrote it out. God, don't let us grow apathetic to your truth that you have died in our place, that you have unleashed your spirit, that you have torn the dividing curtain down. All of those are old truths that most of us have heard before, but God, wake us up to the reality of who you are, how you're here, close by. Wake us up to the reality that we are forgiven and made new. Remind us of how you have proven your love for us on the cross. So that's my first prayer for us, that Jesus would make the reality of the cross new to us. And then secondly, my prayer is that God show us how the cross has changed the world. God, show us how you've turned the world's evil system upside down. Show us how you've set us free through your death. Show us how you've modeled leadership by serving and by humility. Show us all these great reversals, that those far away can be brought near, that you actually love the unlovely, that you actually want those considered unwise by the world. In praying these things, what we have to be ready to do and realize is that God wants us to be part of that change. 
we should be totally ready to be a part of the answers to those prayers. How, how Jesus changed the world of the cross, we should be ready to be a part of that change. You know, it's kind of funny. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. So if at the cross, Jesus fundamentally changed the world, there's in some way, shape, or form that we get to partner with that by taking up our own cross. And that means that just how Jesus turned injustice into justice at the cross, we work against injustice for justice. Just how Jesus changed despair into hope, we get to work against despair and for hope. Just how we can push against warfare and sow peace. We can, we can work against jealousy and instead replace it with gratitude. We can take selfishness and replace it with selflessness. And it's all through the power of that spirit which was released and unleashed from the, from the temple which now lives inside of us to empower us to actually make all that possible. And then my invitation is, we, I mean, you really cannot read the, the text of the crucifixion without saying, hey, do you want to respond to that? Because if you're any, if you, you might find yourself in the same position that I was, just kind of apathetic to the cross, yeah, I'm a Christian, that's cool, I do what I want. That's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So the invitation tonight is to, to change, to kind of step over that line and say, that's where I was, but that's not me anymore. I'm going to change the way I think about the world. I'm going to actually change the way that, who I follow after. So maybe you identify with my story in that way, or maybe you've never called yourself a Christian before, but tonight you want to draw the line in the sand and say, I want to be a follower of Jesus. From this day forward, I'm going to live my life to follow after Jesus. Because it's the cross that makes that decision and us following Jesus, make it, that's what makes any of this possible.